Hey folks, I'm Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. Today's guest is Mr. John Passanen. If you are a loyal Housing Wire listener or Housing News listener, you know that John is a repeat guest on the Housing News Podcast. He is the CEO and co-founder of Maxwell. And John joined us last in December of 2022. We spent a lot of time, kind of an entrepreneur to entrepreneur conversation, talking about his business and his strategy and what we expected for the housing market and the impacts of the housing market on the housing tech ecosystem. Today, we spend time talking about a lot of the data and client interactions that John has across his business with touches point of sale, fulfillment, diligence, and capital markets. We dig into the capital markets challenges of the current housing market. We dig into interest rates and inventory. We talk about some of the trends that he's seeing and shifts of different types of of channel or lenders that are originating more or less volume in the market. And we also dive into a topic which I didn't anticipate. We talk about defects in loan quality and some of the trends that are really popping out in John's data as well as a report from ACES. I wrap this show talking about leadership and how the best executives in housing can lead their teams and organizations to achieve great things, even as we navigate housing cycles. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mr. John Passanen. John, welcome back to Housing News. We have a, a repeat guest. I have not had many repeat guests and definitely not a guest that's repeated in a six-month period, but there's a lot we need to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the market and I appreciate it. And, and I'm glad we, we, we synced beforehand and, and aligned our, our wardrobes with stripes here today. So <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm repping our, my real trends gear today. This is my, I'm not actually going to the golf course. This is my real trends hat as we get ready, ready for the Gathering of Eagles event. And we just launched the Real Trends 1000, which is the ranking and recognition program for the top 500 agents and 500 teams in the US. So this is like, my outfit of solidarity with the real estate agent today <laughs> as we record um, your outfit, your stripes. This is a little more of a jailhouse look though. It is, you know, um, but you know, my legal, <laughs> my legal team, their OKR is to keep John out of orange. So I try to avoid the orange, you know, uh, speaking of jail. So. Uh, all right. That's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're glad your team's looking out for you. So John, in our, in our last episode, when you joined us as a guest for housing news, we talked a lot about, I think it was a little more of like an entrepreneur to entrepreneur conversation about the company you are building at Maxwell. But I want to focus today's conversation on a lot of the data and intelligence that you gain working with the industry across Maxwell's kind of multiple touch points with the market. And at this point in the game, we've seen your your business evolve a lot. Today, you're touching the housing sector through point of sale, fulfillment, diligence, and in capital markets. And that gives you a lot of unique vantage points into what the what is what the originator is seeing, what the servicer is seeing, what the capital markets desk is seeing. So I want to kind of kick off talking about this brutal 15-month period that we've seen over the last year and a quarter where the Federal Reserve has been escalating the benchmark rate to combat inflation. And um, it's impacted the mortgage industry pretty significantly. So let's talk about some of the impacts that you've seen from your vantage point at Maxwell. Yeah. I mean, I think you know we could certainly talk about the things that everybody else is talking about, which is efficiency, uh, cost management, um, cost expenses. I think one one trend that a few people are talking about, but probably not enough, is 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 loan quality. And um, you know, we have uh, a diligence business and quality control pr- 
product where we're able to really take a look at the quality of loans and the pools that are being traded. And um, you know, if you look at the loans that have come out of the last couple of years, you know, there's worrying trends in terms of the major defect rates that that have crept up over the last over the last few years. And I would have expected coming through uh, you know the second half of last year, just given the lower volume for quality to improve, but we haven't we haven't seen that in the numbers yet. And so um, I think that's an area that we're trying to invest some time with our clients to really think about you know major defect quality. Um, you know, that's coming through their manufacturing lines. So when you talk about the per- the period of time, let's, let's be specific. So are we talking about, we're seeing higher defect rates or changes in defect rates coming from the loans that were originated in this low interest rate period in 2020 and 2021, the first half of 22 or, or more like uh, diligence and defects and QA issues in the loans that have originated since we've seen the Fed begin their hiking crusade. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's it's been really in the in the in the second even the second half of last year. So again, I would have expected with a sharp decline in volumes, right? There would have been probably more consciousness on quality, um, but we haven't haven't yet started to see that come out in the numbers uh, in, in the numbers yet. And so, um, you know, you, I think there's, there's probably some of that also being from a product mix perspective, right. Where folks are trying to find loans outside of the standard, you know, Fannie Freddie boxes and are pushing into different, uh, different parts of the credit box, um, and don't have as much expertise in house, you know, to underwrite, uh, loan files and validate, you know, different types of income and, and assets and bank statements. So that could be contributing to, to some of that as well. Um, and then just purchase loans, you know, being, being much more complex too, right. Than than refi and often uh, having to deal with appraisal defects and, and issues like that. So I think that's an area for the industry to watch. And again, it's been interesting to see, uh, you know, the GSEs start to come back and, and, and push more buybacks. Right. And so part of me wonders, uh, you know, they've seen probably the similar trends, um, I don't, I don't have any particular read on, on their motivations per se, but, um, you know, they, they might be worried about the longevity of some of their, their, their sellers and want to, want to take advantage of that in the short term. Interesting points. Okay. So let's talk about GSC buyback. So GSEs should have the tightest grasp on trends when it comes to, to loan quality and in defects, they're seeing the most volume still over 60% of, of national origination volume fl- flowing through, through GSEs. Um, so they have the data, they have the resources to, to watch credit quality. Um, that's really interesting. Okay. So do you, so you, and you also just made the point, they might want to kind of rush to buy back to ensure that the, the lenders that uh, <laughs> have these defect issues are still in business, not consolidated. Right. It makes their job more complex if there's a buyback that needs to be executed. If either the lender's not around or they've been acquired and having to navigate through some of that, uh, some of that, you know, post, post M and a mess might be more difficult. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, and, and, and they're probably seeing too, you know, as, as lenders are competing for business, right. They're having to skirt a little closer to that line of, of, of qualification for the borrower. And, you know, it, again, I have no particular insight, but if I'm them, I want to make sure that, that they're on the right side of the line uh, from a qualification perspective. Do you have any grasp on 
quantifying the amount of defects that are being seen today versus prior years or, or prior periods? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, what I would point to is, uh, you know, our friends at ASIS do do a great report every quarter. Um, it's usually a quarter to uh, lag when they release it on, on overall trends. Um, I would encourage folks to take a look at that um, as, a, as a public source, just to understand some of the trends that they're seeing and what's driving some of the defects um, that they're able to pull from their from their platform. So, um, a ton of respect for the ACES team and and uh, you know what they built and would would highly recommend you know mortgage leaders uh, consume their content um, as as a guide as they're trying to manage quality through the cycle. How how does your diligence build business kind of match up with the other like ACES and other like QA and quality folks in the market? Yeah, so we we partner with ACES, you know, because we're actually providing uh, you know the, the the service, and so we integrate into you know, our lenders LOS systems to automatically pull in the data, sort the data, triage the data um, to be able to do the QC. And then, you know, we have our own intelligence that we that we lay on top of that um, in partnership with folks like ASIS and others to, to, to drive quality control. Okay, interesting. Okay, that, that makes sense. So uh, at, a, at a kind of a high level from your review of the ASIS report and what you've seen with your clients, are there any specific types of defects that seem to be most prevalent right now? Yeah. So if you think of the four, you know, big underwriting categories, assets, credit, you know, income, employment, um, I think income employment tends to be the area where there's probably the most uh, uh, attention, let's put it that way, that that could could be looked at. And again, I think it's because the, 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 the qualification areas tend to fall in that area where you're trying to qualify a borrower based on different types of income, right? Or, or, or employment classes that maybe you may not have two years ago when, when, when business was not as hot. And so um, that's the area where there's probably some stretching going on. Okay. Is that like also impacted by more workers having side hustles and like the whole like gig economy narrative? Yeah, probably. I, I, I don't know to that level of detail, Clayton, but th- I would imagine that that's probably a factor as well. Um, and, you know, just underwriters looking at probably more folks that are quote unquote self-employed or have, you know, 1099 side hustles, um, you know, are earning money from investment properties, what have you, yeah. um, just more complexity that, that they may not have had to deal with, um, earlier. And I think, you know, to be honest, and, and, and ACES, uh, you know, highlights this often, which is as the, as the pool of loans declines, right. And they're selecting their sample you just have a smaller pool to select that sample from. And so it's a bit of law of numbers too, but I think the trend, the trends are still telling. Do you think the, the issues that we've seen across the industry related to affordability, which is a, a combination of home price appreciation and interest rates increasing, which, which raises the bar for income required to afford a median home. Is that affordability issue playing into uh, kind of a, a, a more stretchy approach to qualifying borrowers on the income spectrum? I'm, I'm sure it is. Right. I mean, I think you, again, you got to hit that, you got to hit on the right side of that line, right. To qualify the borrower and uh, on DTI. And so any income that you can, you can scrape in to qualify the borrower is, is great. I, th- I think I saw, in re- you know, Redfin also does great reporting every 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 quarter. Um, I think I saw in their last report 
the median asking price for a home uh, was down only 0.3% year over year in May, right? And so now that's asking price, of course, not the actual sell price, but you know, it just goes to show from a from a sticker perspective, you know, housing prices aren't aren't moving and rates are going up. <laughs> so uh, that's not that's not a good combination for affordability. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, like measures of home prices are you know can be different measures of home prices can be used in different ways. And like so, looking at like active inventory, we we are seeing more like smaller, lower priced inventory come to market right now. And there's like a move away from a lot of the the larger, more expensive homes that we saw hit the market in like the, the fast moving periods of 2021 and 2022. In our Real Trends rankings, we saw a, a pretty, a much larger decline in average transaction volume than number of sides, which tells us that more agents and teams are selling lower priced homes, um, which has an influence on like how those averages and medians look like on, on average asking price and median asking price. Uh, and one of the things we're seeing through Altos data is that the number of active, active listings remains like so incredibly low, right? Like 433,000 active listings. So even if we have an affordability problem and a mismatch on earnings and income with what the medium home price is, uh, it doesn't take a lot of home buyers to absorb 433,000 active listings across the entire United States, which is a pretty powerful floor underneath home prices. Yeah. It's interesting that you see that. I just, while you were saying that I pulled up our average loan size by month and, uh, it's actually been going up, um, even, even sort of year over year. Uh, you know, average loan size is kind of in the, you know, 323 uh, was last month's average loan size. And that's up from, you know, the 300s, low 300s a year ago. So um, inter- interesting that, you, that, that you're seeing, you know, average home prices be down, you know, mortgage, mortgage sizes, at least across our, our volume are, are, are actually up. There are some differences, right? So like we, it's only about 60% of homes in the US that are are mortgaged. I mean, not only it's a lot. Um, and those aren't all transacting. So like there are some like cash transactions that, that move, move the needle. I'd be curious in, in the Maxwell data to overlay that average loan size with, um, with LTV and see if like, if LTV is getting higher at the same time. And, and if like how that, the, the purchase price corresponds with loan size, there, there could be some interesting analysis there. Yeah, there could be. I don't have that data to hand, but if I did, I I pull yeah, it out. Yeah, no, I won't ask you to to pivot it out live right now. I might I might have to I might have to go uh, go to our data team and see uh, see where that's see where that's trending. All right, interesting. Okay, so John, in addition to the kind of some of the trends we're seeing in in loan quality, um, we're also seeing a pretty big shift in the makeup of who originates loans from the type of institution. Um, yeah, the type of institution. So in, as we pull this back to, to loan quality, have you, do you have any insight into like origination channel where there may be more or less defects or is that not a, is that not kind of a screen you have on the, the data right now? Yeah. I don't have the screen on the data by, by, by channel or even by, by lender type. Um, I can, I can go back and, and get that, but nothing, nothing to hand. Um, I, I would say, you know, maybe correlated a little bit to that. Your question is if we look at our, 
sales funnel, right? So the people sort of demanding products uh, and services from us, we're seeing a lot more banks and credit unions, uh, sort of depositories um, in, in, in the sales pipeline, right? And so if you kind of look at the adoption curve, you know, early on, most of our customers were IMBs. Now we're seeing a much bigger mix tilting towards banks and credit unions. And, um, you know, of, of that bunch, you know, the credit unions, by comparison anyway, seem downright cheery uh, to, to the other, to the other segments. And so that would at least seem to in- indicate emotionally that, you know, they're feeling more confident in, in their ability to, to take share, uh, as we go through, as we go through this, this market cycle. That's interesting on a, on the advertising side of our business, we've had a major influx of like tech and services companies who are trying to reach the credit union. So that's, uh, that's, that's interesting that that segment is, um, having a little more success or, or cheerfulness right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, we recently announced an acquisition and, and that was one of the, one of the theses behind that was, you know, uh, lender, lender select serves a lot of credit unions and it's an area we continue to grow in and, and focus on and, um, you know, being able to bring on 180 new clients and serve them and, and cross sell their Maxwell products and empower their businesses was, was really compelling to us, uh, in that, in that transaction. Yeah, tell us more. How does Lender Select fit into the business model? What, what were, you, were you trying to solve a uh, end market access issue or a capability? Like, what, what did Lender Select bring to your business, and what was the thesis there? Yeah, so you know, you, you look at the two organizations. We're both very focused on you know what we call community lenders, right? So the lenders that serve their local markets, whether that's an IMB, whether that's a community bank, whether that's a credit union. Um, for both organizations, that was a huge focus, and so. Um, from the beginning, there was that alignment. Um, and I think that's really important. There's not a lot of organizations out there that focus on the small guy, uh, on the mid-sized guy. And, and that's, uh, that's something that we just found a lot of brotherhood over. Um, and then I think when you get into the organization, it's all about how do we make them successful and empower them with access to the capital markets in particular, right? And access to talent and, and broadening the suite of loan products that these small institutions can originate. Uh, and so... Um, there's just a lot of a lot of crossover in terms of our goals. Um, you know, Lender Select's been around for for about 11 years. Um, has built a great business. You know, 180 uh, clients that they that they work with uh, mostly in the southeast, and um, and so uh, you know, it was just a, a great match from a philosophy perspective, from a capabilities perspective, in, in terms of what we were doing in Maxwell Capital. And, and what we were doing in, in, in our fulfillment business line as well. All right. So kind of for the uninitiated here, what do lender select clients lean on lender select for and now lean on Maxwell Capital for? Like what, what, is, what are they coming to you for? Yeah. So their biggest areas, yeah. So their biggest areas of the business were, you know, sort of capital markets, TPO, correspondent, right? Which is a lot of what we do in, in Maxwell Capital. Um, and then some level of fulfillment uh, slash private label uh, work, um, in the back office. And, you know, lender select was largely doing this without any technology. And so I think us being able to pair our point of sale, our data platform, uh, with them and their clients just allows us to do it a lot more efficiently and and effectively than they can. So lender select and Maxwell capital is kind of a, a best fit for lenders and banks kind of the scale where they, might not it might not be economical or or reasonable to build out a full capital markets and and fulfillment team so so maxwell and lender select serves as 
that that outsource partner to have best of breed capital markets capabilities without uh, having to hire that whole organization internally and someone who might not have you know top one hundred like Humda type volume. Exactly, and they may not have access to the secondary buyers, whether that's the GSEs or other Wall Street firms to um, to sell their loans at the best margins. Uh, let alone have a diversity of products that they know how to underwrite from you know jumbo to FHA to to other products. And so again, that's that's where we are able to support the the, the small to mid sized guys is just giving them that same breath that you know a large lender would have because they're part of our platform. Okay, so tying this acquisition and and client focus to to current market dynamics, um, we published an article recently, and George Ratu is the chief economist that Keeping Current Matters shared with one of our journalists, um, Flavia, that the spread between the the ten year and the Freddie thirty year mortgage rates is close to three hundred basis points, and like there's a lot of people in the industry kind of pointing at that pricing spread as being one of the issues the market faces in terms of current pricing of 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 mortgages and um I, yeah, i'm not a capital markets expert but that spreads sounds a little bit wide on historical standards um what's driving that that kind of spread between the two and um am i am i even right in bringing this topic up as we've talked about capital markets like give me a little more glimpse into how the capital markets desk influences the spread in mortgage pricing one thing i like to think about myself is i i know what i know and i know what i don't know and that's not an area of expertise for me. And so, uh, you know, while I try to play an, an economist on Zoom, uh, <laughs> I am not one. Uh, um, so I, I guess as someone, you know, running the business and, and grateful to work with with incredibly intelligent people uh, on my leadership team, you know, I, it, it does feel a little bit like we've moved, at least for, for the time being, from this, you know, just rapid increase in rates uh, that we were trying to, to adjust to, to some level of stability. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, that's what this market's going to need is stability, right? Where agents can, can go out there and they know how to do a deal and they don't have buyers that are worried about, should it be now, should it be later, right? So there's some level of predictability. I think all of us yearn for some predictability. And uh, um, the sooner we get back to that, the the, the better. So when you bring your leadership team together or have a board meeting and pull in folks from Maxwell Capital, is stability the word that that keeps coming up that like the the capital markets desk and your clients are are hunting for? Yeah, it's stability. It's also uh, you know pricing advantage is 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 a demand there, right? And so um, you know how do we give our clients and how do we get a pricing advantage? And what are some creative things that we can do to to support them and help ourselves in that process too? Yeah. Okay. So. Both each of us and a lot of the audience here, we're all we're managing businesses or, or departments in the mortgage industry. We're all trying to allocate resources and and plan for a little bit of that, you know, that crystal ball shaking and you know, figure out what's to come in the second half of the year. Um, where should we be hiring? Where should we be tightening our belts? How are how are you thinking about the industry in the second half of the year and into into twenty twenty four? How are you organizing your your team and your resources and your go-to-market strategy to, uh, you know, to, it all depends on making some assumptions about what's ahead, but how are you thinking about what's ahead? Yeah. And I, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts too, Clayton, um, you know, from the folks that you talk to, um, uh, you know, we're all trying to figure that out. Um, I think what helps us all sleep at night is we know this industry is cyclical, right? And so it's not a matter of if it will come back, it's a when. And so the question is, 
when will it come back, right? And if we cycle back a year, I think we all looked at 2023 and said, hey, maybe we'll have a good spring home buying season in 2023 because we didn't have one last year. It's turning out to be kind of meh, right? Uh, if that. And so now we're starting to look further afield uh, to saying, when, when is it going to come back? So I think the, the question really is, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but how long is the tunnel? <laughs> and, um, you know, what, what we're preparing for at Maxwell is that this is, has the potential to be a longer tunnel uh, than, than maybe we all initially expected as, as the rate increases started, right? Sucking liquidity out of the system is uh, takes a while and is incredibly painful. And, and there's a lot of change that has to happen and roll through before liquidity can start to leak back in. And then I think you've just got these really fascinating sort of socio-demographic shifts um, that are happening simultaneously, right? I mean, I saw a stat the other day that baby boomers hold 54% of household uh, net worth in this country, 54%. Right? So you've got this huge generation that's just sitting on cash right? And they're not producing. So you have a huge generation that's not part of the production in the economy, but they're part of the spend in the economy. And that's just driving demand way up. And so you've got tremendous demand from this, uh, this group of, of the population that's able to spend cash. Um, and, you, and you have a relatively smaller group that's actually part of the producing economy. In the meantime, globalization, which tends to be a deflationary influence, is actually deglobalizing, right? We're becoming, trying to become less dependent on China less dependent on on Russia and Russian oil and, and other parties, right? And so that's also increasing costs. Um, so I think there's some really interesting factors at play globally. And while technology tends to be deflationary, right, that takes time too. And that takes adoption and um, is working its, its way through sort of the broader economy. And, you know, if anything, AI is probably over-talked about um, uh, from, from that effect. And we'll see what happens over the next half decade on that. But um, I think we're preparing that, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out in the U.S. economy right now, not just in housing. And, uh, you know, it could it could not be till 2025, 2026 that we really start to get get to a stable point. And so that's what we're preparing for. Um, and I think part, part of the reason we're, we're looking at M&A is it's a, a great muscle for us to flex and, um, you know, to, to build our fleet during this time when, um, we can be stronger together. Yeah. Yeah. I like that strategy. But what are, what are you, what are you hearing from, uh, what are you hearing from others in terms of, in terms of time and length of time it's going to take to get through this? So I was on a call earlier this week, um, team call and Mike Simonson, our president of Altos research, uh, was on video in the call, but he was on a train leaving New York and heading, heading upstate. And, uh, if you've done that ride, you know, there's a few tunnels that you go through. And I thought about the analogy of light at the end of the tunnel as he's, as I'm watching him on video. And the funny thing about tunnels is that the light goes out immediately and it turns back on immediately. There's not like this gradual brightening, like you go from dark tunnel to the light. That's not what I'm anticipating for, for this cycle. It feels like stabilization, um, isn't going to result. And I think a lot of people in the industry are waiting for like a spring home, a late <laughs> spring home buying season just to turn on and like rates drop down to, to 5.5 and everybody in the world lists their house. And we see inventory shoot up from 400,000 to over a million, which is what a healthy market needs. Um, 
I don't think it's going to be that like, it's not going to be a light switch. It's not going to be, you come out of the tunnel and you have daylight. I, I think it's going to be this gradual evolution. Um, that's less, uh, less jarring than a lot of like housing cycle moves that, that we've seen in the past. So like we, we did go into this tunnel, like lights off, like rates started shooting up market turned off September of 2022. Um, I think the, the exit from the tunnel is going to be much more gradual and uh, it's going to come with continued rate volatility. Um, it's going to come with uncertainty on uh, home prices and, and listing inventory. I think you said it well, that there's a lot of things that need to be worked out in the economy, not just in, in housing, but, but other sectors um, we're going to have, like, we're going to go into a, presidential election cycle in the next few years. And like, that's going to create more like noise and uncertainty and, um, (laughs) and like, yeah, I I think it's just going to be a, you know, an uncertain couple of years. And I think that's like, that's what has to be prepared for. And, um, I think we're seeing right now, like the operators and investors and originators who like who know the game they're playing, like know they're in a cyclical market and are willing to invest and build in this period. Um, and the ones who either didn't come into this period with the cash, the balance sheet or the stamina to, to get to the other side. Um, so if you have the cash, the balance sheet and the advantage of time, um, I think it can be a really powerful market to, to, to build as we gradually climb. But I'm, I'm no, I mean, I think, I think when we talked in December, like you and I were, you know, both kind of hoping for like lights to just turn back on in like April or May. And we saw like this, like normal, like, like spring home buying season with a lot of activity. And, you know, that didn't happen. Listings weren't there to support it. Affordability is not there to support it. Um, it doesn't feel like we're just going to see a light switch turn on, but we're going to see this, this gradual, like the, the strong, like muscle their way back to the, back to the top. Yeah. I want to, I think I mentioned this when we spoke last too, but just for folks that weren't on the call, one of my favorite graphs, if history is any lesson, uh, there's a graph that I found that goes back to 1968 and shows existing home sales. And then it overlays it with uh, every recession since 1968. And what you see is a little bit what we've seen so far, right? Which is housing tends to lead into the recession, right? It's the first market to dip ahead of the recession. But every single recession, every single one since 1968, it's, it, it exploded out of the recession. Now, a lot of every, every recession is a little different in terms of the factors, but I do take some comfort from that in terms of, uh, you know, the recovery and that there will be a recovery and housing will be one of the first ones. So that's the other thing is, it started, the housing started to recover before the recession ended, right? Yep. Um, as, as people put off these large purchases or put off moving or put off these life decisions, right? They can start to see things are getting a little better or at least stabilizing. And they start to, to say, okay, now we're going to go make that, that big decision that we need to make on housing. So uh, that's, that's, that's another area where I find some hope is that we may be, have been the first, one of the first markets to feel the pain, but we'll be the first, some of the, one of the first ones to start to feel the recovery. Knock, knock on, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Logan, Logan Moshami made the call last June that like the housing recession has begun and like we've yet to make a call that we are at a, an actual economic recession. I think there's, you know, different people with different measures right now. 
Um, so maybe we're 12 months ahead of like the broader economic cycle. Uh, last year, 2022 at the gathering of Eagles, Tom Ferry and I were on stage talking to our audience of, of real estate brokers and association execs. And we asked everybody to raise their hand, uh, if they've been through like one housing cycle and two housing cycles. I and mean, it went up to, went up to seven, like we had some real OGs in the, in the room and the, um, the level of confidence of how to navigate and like it honestly just how much these people were enjoying themselves i think was kind of um uh directly correlated with their experience in the sector and knowing what to expect as you go through a housing cycle i I think if you're a first timer and like the only cycle that you can anchor on is what we saw in 2007 8 9 10 11 um like housing cycles can still sound pretty, pretty scary, but like that, that chart that you mentioned, I've seen that data overlaid with home prices. And it's a good reminder that like housing is a hard assets have always performed pretty well through recessionary periods and home prices, with the exception of what we saw in the GFC, um, uh, were, you know, great assets to own, which, um, feels like what we're seeing right now, which feels like uncharted territory considering how different it was 15 years ago. But, uh, it makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sure we've all seen the stats from, you know, the NBA and others that, that talk about, you know, I, I think it was in Q4, the average IMB lost 99 basis points on every loan they originated, right? In Q1, I think it was 68 basis points, right? And only 32% of IMBs were profitable. They don't publish the stats for banks and credit unions um, who um, I don't think were as aggressive in cost reduction. And so the numbers might even be worse in that segment. But they have other business lines, the buoy bottom line. They have other business lines to support and they can potentially shift some some folks across. But if you look at their mortgages, particularly the ones maybe that have, you know, that, that run mortgages is sort of a silo. Um, that's interesting. And so, you know, our, our tenant continues to be, and I think this market is proving it, it's really hard to run a business where you're manufacturing a financial asset and to do it if you don't have the scale to really think about that manufacturing line. And so... Um, not, you know, to give a soft pitch on our business, right? We, 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 our premise is that we lenders need a different business model. And, um, you know, we launched private label last year as the means for lenders to say, Hey, we can't manage through the risk, through the variability, uh, of, of the cycles. Um, and we want a partner that, that allows us to do that with the same scale that, you know, a top five lender can do it. And that's really what we have built at Maxwell. Here, here's the risk, John. You, you handle it for us. You're young. You can handle a few more gray hairs. You take That's care right. of it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, John, you mentioned like uh, the, the the NBA survey and IMBs losing money on on every every loan they produce in the last survey. Um, and you also mentioned AI earlier. Can you, can you give us some like kind of brief commentary on how? what technology is being levered to improve the margin profile and, you know, give lenders a shot at profitable loan origination, even in low volume marketplaces. Yeah. So, so we can certainly talk about AI. I think the the best way, you know, lenders have cut down to the nub. And so they're at this level of fixed cost that in many ways they can't go below. So I think profitability is a volume play. And so, what we think about with our clients is how do we just get you as much of the volume as you can, right? And so, you know, the North Star for our point of sale team, for example, is we want to be the best point of sale at converting a lead into a closed loan. And so we measure every stage of that borrower 
through that loan life cycle? Are we converting that borrower through to the next stage in the funnel, through to the next stage in the funnel, through to the next stage in the funnel, right? And I'm really pleased with the data that we've seen. We're the best point of sale at moving a borrower from the lead to a closed loan. So, you know, that's that's number one. Like, how do you just get more revenue? Um, we like to say revenue is the best twofer, right? It 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 uh, it, it gives you growth, and it solves uh, sort of your your margin and your your opex issues because you're just having more revenue to to spread that across. So that's 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 one area where we where we spend a lot of time focusing is on how do we just drive more revenue uh, for our customers. Um, I think AI, uh, um, you know, could hold some promise. Uh, it's going to be really complex to figure out how that works in our, in our, in our industry. Um, because, uh, you know, every borrower is different. Every house is different. Um, uh, there's what, what, like 160 different versions of W2s out there, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just a lot of complexity. I didn't know that. I had no idea there's 160 versions of W2s. Well, something like that. Don't, don't quote me on the number, but it's some large number of different formats, right? For, for, for those kind of documents. And so I think it's 159. It's 159. Okay. That must be it. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, to be able to, to, to manage through that is incredible. And you have to be right. Right. Um, you know, all of us have played with chat GPT and, and Bard and it's wrong. <laughs> Right, it's just plain wrong sometimes. I, I, um, I, I, we're, we're, so we're playing with it a lot in our business, and I, I was just like messing with it one day, and I said, "Write, write me an article." And I'm not going to say the person's name, but like a prominent industry, a prominent mortgage executive on his acquisition of Loan Depot and why he's the CEO now. That is all false, not true at all. And Chat Chat DTP was happy to create that content. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, and in mortgage, you just can't be wrong, right? So where we started the conversation around the, the, the major defects, right? You have to be right 100% of the time. And so um, uh, the reality is humans will always, well, I mean, maybe not always, but will continue to need to be part of the process and, uh, and, and AI is an enabling tool. Um, but, you know, like we, we um, we're in the process of testing, uh, you know, an AI implementation for letter of explanation, right? You know, ChatGPT is great at writing content. Uh, what if with a small prompt from the borrower and the loan officer could generate that initial, uh, that initial letter. And we've turned the creativity knob all the way down to zero and it's still creating these really wonky letters, right? So even, even that stuff is, is that, that sort of aid, right? Um, is, is an area where there needs to be, there needs to be some work. So, um, I think there's going to be some interesting stuff done around personalization, right? And how do you, personalize content and tailor outreach to the consumer. So at the top of the funnel will probably be a little easier because if you get it wrong, the stakes aren't as high. Um, I think supporting the sales staff, supporting the borrower through the process, you know, with help uh, and chat bots, um, um, giving the loan officer access to, to information very quickly on guidelines and credit boxes. Some of that I think will help. Um, but once you start getting into underwriting and capital markets and, it, you know, it, it starts getting a little a, a little rusty. I think the other area that we're excited about is analytics and and and, and predictive uh, predictive analytics. And so, how do we take data and start to overlay some level of prediction around, um, you know, things like your tolerance cure, you know, budgets and um, uh, uh, you know underwriter performance and, and things like that, right? So again, it's not 
high stakes. It's important, but it's not high stakes stuff that, that we can start to lean into initially. All right, John, I want to ask you one closing question. I didn't prep you for this. So I'll give you a, a second here. But um, as we're navigating this incredibly challenging market, but I think both and many executives are seeing opportunity as we navigate a cycle. What's one leadership lesson that you can share? Something that you're applying with your team at Maxwell, something you're applying with clients. I'll give you a second to think on that. And while you think, I'm going to remind everybody, if you found any value in this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate the show and leave a comment. It'll help more people discover housing news and, and bring this knowledge to a, to a broader audience. And on that, John, leadership lesson. Awesome. Well, you didn't prep me for any of this, so um, I appreciate the yeah, caveat. No, yeah, I didn't prep you for any of it. But. <laughs> um, so, leadership lesson. Uh, I'll get. I'll give two quick ones. Uh, I just needed an excuse to plug the podcast. <laughs> nice, really, <I> like <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give two quick ones. I had the great fortune of 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 working under uh, one of the best CEOs, uh, a gentleman named Ken Chenault at American Express uh, for almost a decade, and Ken said the role of a leader is to uh, uh, define reality and give hope. And uh, that's something that I've leaned on a lot through the cycle of saying, being really clear with my team around what's happening, what's the context in which we're operating, right? What's the reality of this? And then what's the hope, right? Where do we need to keep our eyes focused to be successful through this? Um, like there's a lot of failure and a lot of difficulty going on. And everybody thinks about, you know, I'm, I'm a failure, the emperor has no clothes, uh, um, um, imposter syndrome, whatever it is, right? Everybody is going through that right now. And, um, uh, you know, I want to be in the reality, right? And I, I don't want to be on the sidelines. I'd rather be in the reality, but also know where am I headed and how am I going to get there? So define reality and give hope is, is the first lesson. And the second one, which is more just something I've been thinking about a lot, is this idea of, of emotional commitment um, from, from employees. Um, great book to read. Um, bury my heart at conference room B by Stan slap. Uh, been going through that. It's, a, it's not a great, <laughs> not a great name for, for a book. Um, but one of the topics that he starts to unpack is this idea of how do you identify and nurture emotional commitment in your team, right? When you're going through something difficult, like adversity, you want people that aren't just doing it for the financials, aren't just doing it for the intellectual challenge, but really that they're emotionally committed to get through it. And so, um, that's a area I think of leadership that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot. Excellent. John, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks Clayton. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the housing news podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you. Thank you.